Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me are... Devendra Hardware. And Jeff Kanata. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. Devendra, your voice sounds a little bit different this week. You're using a different microphone. Where are you? Different microphone. I'm uh, staring at an alley in San Francisco from a hotel room, so... <laughs> I see. What are you doing? It's not very exciting. What are you doing in San Francisco other than just staring at alleys? I'm here for Intel's uh, developer conference, which is also not very exciting. But, uh, you know, new chips, that's fun. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> yeah. thanks for joining us. Like, you're in a hotel, I'm guessing, right now? Yeah. All yeah. right. So, Davindra's audio is a little bit rough this week. Apologies for that. But, uh, Davindra, really appreciate you joining the Slash Filmcast anyway, even though you are across the yeah. country. I know I what that can be like. I to see the movie right before my flight. That's how dedicated I am. Guys. Come on. <laughs> appreciate it. Uh, well, thanks for tuning in to the Slash Filmcast, ladies and gentlemen. If you're just tuning in for the first time, find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmcast.com. You can always email us at SlashFilmcast.gmail.com. Today, uh, we're going to be discussing your movie dilemmas. Uh, we asked you to email in movie dilemmas. A bunch of people emailed in movie dilemmas. We'll talk about one of those. Uh, we are going to talk about what we've been watching this week. We have a film news discussion. Uh, a few things happened this week we want to mention. And then move into our featured review of Pete's Dragon, a uh, new film out by David Lowry this week. And so that is the show. Let's get right into it. This email comes in from John uh, to slash filmcast at gmail.com. John does not leave uh, any information about who he is or where he's from for reasons that will become very obvious shortly. Dave, we should really come up with a, a fun title for this site. Movie Dilemmas is, is, does not roll off the tongue. Well, Jeff, you are good at puns in titles. <laughs> I'll work so, on it, but I'd love to, I'd love to uh, see what the audience comes up with Yeah, as well. sure. If you, have a, if you have a suggestion for titles. Movies, uh, morals, minutes or something. I don't know. Movies, morals, yeah. Eh. No, movie, movie, moral, movie minute. Morals. Yeah. Movie but morals. It's probably going to take longer than a minute, Jeff. We don't want it to be a malapropism. <laughs> Uh, anyway, write in with titles at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Uh, and Jeff, if you come up with anything punny, uh, we'll be interested to hear it. Anyway, John writes in, I have a moral dance slash dilemma relating to movies that I'm hoping you could weigh in on. About six weeks ago, I was at the store buying cat food. The store was running a promo where if you bought two big bags of cat food, you got a $10 gift card to that store. I bought the two bags and got the gift card intending to stash it for some later movie slash game slash purchase. A few weeks later, that store was selling all the Bourne movies for $8, and each of them had an $8 Fandango movie pass to see Jason Bourne. Being of a similar mindset to y'all on the excellence of a Bourne series, I thought this was a win-win opportunity to upgrade my DVDs to Blu-rays and get to see the movie gratis. The value proposition of this transaction was undeniably outstanding, as I would ultimately be paying $14 for three Blu-rays, which included $24 of movie passes. I did not get the Bourne Legacy. I purposely did not buy any of the similarly priced Bourne collection box sets, as I knew they would only have a single ticket to see Jason Bourne one time. I purposely bought all three of the Bourne movies individually, so I could get three separate $8 movie passes. I did this knowing that I would use one of those Jason Bourne passes to actually see Jason Bourne, which I did, and I was glad I did not pay to see that movie. My ultimate plan, however, was to use the other two passes to pay for a ticket for, to Jason Bourne with the full intention of walking into a theater playing something other than Jason Bourne. Side note, my, cinema is, uh, my local cinema is a sort of place that has one central ticket taker that acts as a gatekeeper to the entirety of the complex. So once I get past the ticket taker, there is no enforcement about which theater you actually walk into. 
just yesterday, I used one of these Jason Bourne passes to see Suicide Squad, and I intend to use the last one to see something else. I tried to be somewhat conscientious about this, as I don't want to sit in a crowded screening and deprive regular patrons of a seat for which they paid hard-earned money. I also realized this is in some minuscule way affects box office revenue figures for each of these films. However, we all know that ticket revenues are not how theaters make most of their money. So being an arguably good theater customer, I bought popcorn and soda and otherwise patronized my theater in a way where the theater actually made money from me, despite the fact that I had actually mildly defrauded them. (laughs) Being raised Catholic, I suffer mild to severe Catholic guilt and feel guilty about many of the inconsequential things. Uh, I have a feeling this falls into the technically illegal, but ultimately mostly morally permissible category, a la Jeff's orphan black dilemma or Devendra's downloading of digital files that he already owns in hard copy. Nevertheless, I am interested in being adjudicated by the Superior Court of the Slash Filmcast. Uh, So the court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Uh, So John, from who, who knows where he's from, uh, has been buying born Blu-rays that have $8 Fandango movie passes and using those passes and then walking into other movies. I think I think all of the the bornness of this uh, is is secondary, right? The yeah. central the central question is: Can you buy a ticket for one thing or have a ticket for one thing and go to another thing? Yeah, and, and by the way, that, just so you know, like we got lots of emails that were like that. Like, what if I don't want to support Suicide Squad and I want to buy a ticket for something else, but go see Suicide Squad? Like, there's a lot of questions like that. So that I'll say, make any sense. We're gonna talk about uh, this issue on this episode and then like if you <laughs> write in, in yeah if you write in in the future we may address it in you know 30 or 40 episodes from now but like if you write it again next week asking hey i want to buy a ticket for blank and see another thing we're probably not going to talk about it again because they're all kind of we've same. also talked about years ago yeah if you i don't know if you remember but yeah. they're, they're all kind of the same category of thing yeah. um and i would say that john's assessment that this is kind of technically illegal but ultimately mostly morally permissible, I think that's about right. Sure. I would yeah. never advocate against uh, or advocate for buying a ticket to something and seeing something else because you know, you're know you in some way depriving the something else of money that should go to it, to that property, should to those, those people, that studio, or, or the, the artisans who made that film. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I think so. Unless you are consciously... Doing so in an act of civil disobedience. Yeah, those, those artisans, Dave. Most of the artisans, they, they have you know they've got their money. They're they're paid for their job. It's really uh, who gets paid for the success of the movie. It's maybe the stars and the director and some execs and producers sometimes. So it's the higher level folks. Yeah, the people who are making residuals. You're talking about the, the yep. above the line people who will. Mm-hmm. So those people will suffer the most, and they probably are doing okay. Is is your right, rationale? Right. Uh, but I don't know if that's quite true, but, you know, I understand the reasoning behind yeah. it. Jeff- there, there are times, guys, like when we have to see a really a movie that we know is not going to be good going into it, right? And I, I feel bad paying money for that. Like I'm supporting want to the, see it, at, right? the downside of Hollywood. I don't want to see it. <laughs> so <laughs> well, you're saying you're seeing it for the slash filmcast, you mean? Yes, yes. Oh. There are definitely cases where we have to do that. And, uh, you know, in that case, or if you're just curious about something, it's uh, – it's not as bad as like going to a movie and then hopping to another theater and continuing to see like something else. Like that's something people do, and I'm not really. For so you that. draw the line at buying one ticket and seeing two movies. Exactly. Right? You think that's bad, yeah. but you think one like one seems fine. Buying Especially a ticket if you buy concessions. Yeah. 
It, yeah, for, from the theater perspective, it's it's no difference to them. That's all the theater cares about is concessions. But from the perspective of the people who made the movie that you're kind of quote-unquote stealing, they get deprived of some kind of money. Jeff, Jeff cannot weigh in on this. Your thoughts? So I have this friend. <laughs> let, let's call him Bluff. Bluff Blanada. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And uh, when Bluff was, was younger and uh, he just moved to Los Angeles, uh, <laughs> Bluff wouldn't, uh, wouldn't go home for Christmas. He, he would stay, uh, stay in Los Angeles, and it was a lonely time. It was a very lonely time for Bluff. And uh, on Christmas Day, uh, because Bluff's family celebrates Christmas the week before Christmas, uh, just as a sort of convenience and scheduling thing for the rest of the family, it actually works really, really well for Bluff. Um, and, I wonder if uh, Bluff is going to pass on this tradition to his <laughs> forthcoming child. Yeah, you, you heard about Bluff's kid. He's about to have one. Bliff, Bliff, Blanada. Yeah, uh, and uh, so on Christmas Day, it was Bluff's tradition uh, to go to the first showing of something and spend the day at the theater and pay mm-hmm. once and see three movies. Mm. Um, and Sounds that, like that, Bluff's a pretty shitty guy. You think that's, shitty? that's shitty. That's that's bad, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's so. Shitty? Yeah. I, I don't know. I guess, see, from Bluff's little moral dance perspective, <laughs> as he likes to do, he's a, he's a moral dancer. Uh, and he would say that the screen in the fil- on the film is going to project the film either way. <laughs> and whether Bluff is inside that screen or not, it's being projected. Uh, I see um, we're going to a Tofar degree here, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, we, we sort of talked about this, too. It's sort of like... The, Morals, high morals, is something that you can have when you can afford it, and when you can't, it's more like <laughs> <Right>. you know, <laughs> right. whatever. Yeah. yeah, those were those were uh, those were the old days. It's a victimless uh, crime, victimless. Bluff would yeah. say, right? Victimless That's what crime. Bluff would say. I I don't condone that, but <laughs> Bluff would say. Uh, that's a victimless crime. All right. So, so, is, am like, I, so regardless of what Bluff does in his uh, spare time, what do you think about John's dilemma of using Bourne tickets to get into other movies? What does Jeff Kanata think? Um, it sounds like Jeff might agree with Bluff on this one, that it's okay. I, I think I, th- I wouldn't uh, – I would never, you know – Tell someone that they shouldn't do this. I I, I think that this you get you're getting a free pass into a, into the movie theater is is how I look at it. But yeah, it's technically supposed to, you're supposed to see this movie because you bought that movie's Blu-ray. I, <laughs> I'm talking myself into a corner here. I think I agree with you guys. It is technically wrong, but it's not as bad as you know. I don't know. And, and yeah, he's, he's going to the library and checking those movies out, and then taking the movie <laughs> the one time use yeah. redeemable codes or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. Well, John, it sounds like we all agree with you pretty much. Technically, not the thing you're supposed to do, uh, but mostly it is morally permissible, uh, and I I would agree with that. I think that I, I mean in general, I think that if you should uh, if you're going to pay money to see a movie, you should see that movie. Uh, am I going to say I've never done he otherwise? He didn't pay any money to see this movie. That's the thing. Like he, <laughs> he didn't pay any money to see this movie at all. If you're going yeah. to use a redeemable code to see a movie, it should be for that movie, uh, <laughs> and and not you know go to another movie that you otherwise would have paid to see. Uh, that's my position. I'm not. Am I going to say I've never done what John is is saying he's done here? Uh, I'm not going to say I've never done that. 
But uh, in general, I try to avoid. So Here's the biggest reason for me that this, this kind of behavior is being phased out. And that is because I love having a specific assigned seat. Mm. And most of the theaters in L.A. at this point have mm-hmm. assigned seating. And just wandering into another screening of something, however you find yourself in it, now is fraught with peril because someone may have already paid for the specific seat you happen to sit in. And, right. And, you know, and I, I'm i so averse to that m- moment where somebody's like, um, I have F12. And you're like, oh, oh I, I just must have sat in the – where can I wander to now that somebody won't do that again to me? And then you're the guy that, like, <laughs> people ask to move three times. Yeah, and people are getting real suspicious of what the hell you're doing. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I, you know, I for me, the convenience of having an assigned seat and not having to get to a th- movie screening early, you know, that's the biggest problem, honestly, with going to press screenings is that you, still, you have to live in the – in the Stone Ages, where you had to go to a screening early to get a good seat, um, because there's no assigned seats at press screening. So I love purchasing an exact seat ahead of time and being able to stroll in whenever, you know, however late I need to before the movie starts, uh, and not worry about my seat being taken. I, I love that. It's worth the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I've discussed many times on the slash filmcast, Jeff, uh, I feel like the assigned seats are a double-edged sword because. If you end up sitting close to an asshole or some other noise-making entity, uh, then it is very difficult to move away from that scenario. That's true. Uh, So I am okay with either one. I see the advantages and disadvantages of both. In any case, thanks, John, for writing in with your movie dilemma. And hopefully this uh, discussion has somewhat alleviated your incredible Catholic guilt Around using I think, born passes. To see. I think what the, this this new segment is going to make make me realize, uh, despite Bluff thinking he was a pretty decent guy when he was young, he did a lot of bad things. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's okay. Uh, you know, I think it's okay to realize the error of your former ways. Uh, I mean, if you're Bluff, I mean, his, uh, um, his yeah, former his his way. his former ways. Sorry, yeah, right. that's right. Uh, all right. Well, uh, again, you can always write in with your movie dilemma to sliceflamcast@gmail.com. Let's get to what we've been watching this week. Uh, I want to mention a couple of things. I, I've watched basically every major release coming out in theaters this weekend. First thing I saw I want to mention is Sausage Party, uh, which is a new animated film from the minds of Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. It's directed by Conrad Vernon and Greg Tiernan. And it was made for roughly, I think, $19 million, which is incredible because I remember when like Toy Story 1 came out, which probably has comparable animation quality to Sausage Party. And, uh, you know, cost a lot more money than that. That being said, uh, uh, it sounds like Rogan and Goldberg were working on this movie for like 10 years from a script perspective and trying to get it made. It is an incredibly raunchy, R-rated comedy about uh, items at a supermarket. It's basically like if uh, Toy Story was applied to the world of a supermarket and all the food items were actually sentient creatures, right? Uh, And... Right from the opening musical number, which is apparently is written by Alan Menken. You can find it oh, online. Nice. Uh, and if you listen to that opening musical number and you think it's amazing, you're going to love this movie. I laughed my ass off at this film. Uh, where they basically – all these uh, uh, food products sing about how the gods, a.k.a. human beings, uh, are going to come and buy them. And take them to the great beyond, beyond like the double doors of the supermarket. Uh, and in the food world, the great beyond is heaven for them, right? Like that's what they're hoping for. And during this uh, opening number, there's a lot of swearing. There's a lot of ethnic stereotypes are invoked. 
Uh, it is very funny uh, and also very offensive and inappropriate. And if you can get past that musical number and you're on board, then I think you'll you'll really like the movie. Uh, I really enjoyed Sausage Party. Uh, I thought it was very, very funny. I can totally understand if it is not your bag because uh, a lot of the humor is juvenile. Uh, (laughs) Some of it does depend on, like, the hilarity of seeing uh, a package of sausages use the F word a lot. Like, if that sounds funny to you, then you'll probably enjoy this movie. You know, so there's a little bit of that. But I thought it was pretty hilarious because it explores the... Uh, A, it kind of brings the logical implications of food being sentient to its conclusion, which is to say, like, <laughs> the horrors. Imagine, like, I, I actually did this a periscope. This is what you've always wanted from an animated movie. That's exactly right. I did a periscope <laughs> this week. I kid you not. I did a periscope. You can follow me on periscope at Dave Chensky. I, I did a periscope talking about uh, the most disturbing thing about Toy Story, which is that uh, you find out in a Toy Story 2, spoilers for Toy Story 2, that the toys are sentient and uh, they experience time and that they like when they get thrown in a landfill they just live in a landfill for eternity <laughs> and like that's a really troubling idea right uh, that a toy could just end up in a landfill like and just exist forever <laughs> well that's, like, that's an easy way to avoid like toy afterlife right so yeah I, I guess uh, they never you know, die but then when you think of Toy Story 3 spo- spoilers for Toy Story 3 it's like wow those toys are going to be incinerated I, I think on some level that might have come as a relief to them you know <laughs> Anyway, and my suffering, please. Anyway, Sausage Party does explore the idea of, hey, when these food products get bought, guess what happens to them? They get taken home and eaten. And uh, that is horrifying if you're a food product. But they're all under the illusion that they'll be cared for and celebrated and taken care of uh, forever. Uh, so you, you know, it, it explores that dynamic in graphic detail, like what happens when – food products get eaten and how that feels if you are a food product. Uh, But also, the movie makes some pretty astute observations about atheism and religion uh, that really surprised me. I wouldn't say it's like, you know, a brilliant film that, wow, such an incisive take on atheism. Uh, But I think some of the elements that it brings up about, like, how how people believe, why they believe, uh, and what you need to do if you want to convince them of your way, I think are pretty astute. So... Uh, overall, I really enjoyed the film, and uh, there's really nothing else like it in theaters. Uh, so I'd recommend checking it out. So that's Sausage is this, Party. It, yep. Is it raunchy in the way that South Park is raunchy? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is raunchy. I mean, th- part of the dynamic comes from the fact that – and you, you see this in the opening scene – that like there's this package of sausages that all like are buddies. They talk to each other, and then they're trying – there's like buns who are like anthropomorphized like female – characters uh and so like the sausages want to like get into the buns you know like they can't wait until they're taking the great the great beyond and then the sausages can be with the buns like inside the buns you know wonder what that means yeah yeah i don't i'm not following the metaphor Mm. yeah well if you're not following the metaphor you won't enjoy the movie jeff Mm. um so (laughs) because that is as tame as it gets in sausage party (laughs) uh so yeah it is hilarious i I had a great time i laughed my ass off and uh really enjoyed myself so sausage party out in theaters right now and doing very well at the box office by the way kind of a surprise uh you know hit of the summer i would say so 
That's Sausage Party. Uh, I also saw a movie called Hell or High Water. You guys heard about this movie? Yeah. Uh, this is uh, a new film by director David McKenzie. It's written by Taylor Sheridan, who wrote Sicario. This movie stars uh, Ben Foster and Chris Pine as brothers who rob branches of a bank, uh, and they're trying to achieve a goal that uh, I'm not going to go into. Uh, and Jeff Bridges plays a sheriff who's trying to stop them. Uh, and it's kind of a modern-day Western. A lot of people are saying this movie is amazing. I really like the movie. I didn't think it was amazing, uh, but I quite enjoyed it as like a really solid uh, genre film uh, where this movie does two things really, really well. Three things, actually, now that I think about it. Number one, uh, it really is great at conveying a sense of place. West Texas, uh, I don't know the economic conditions of West Texas like in real life. I've talked to people who live in Texas. Uh, and apparently, like, the, the vision of West Texas as portrayed in this film is not too far off from the truth. That is to say, the poverty is punishing and that there are, like, common entities that people blame for that, including the banks. And so these two people are trying to rob these banks. Uh, they're kind of sticking it to the man in a way that is invigorating for a lot of people. But it's also very dangerous uh, that it feels kind of almost frontier-like, that there's not that much law and order, that you could commit a crime, there's, everyone carries guns, and that like someone could get murdered and get away with it you know, easily, uh, at least in the world of the film. So this, the sense of place that it conveys, like just the cinematography, is beautiful. It looks amazing. It feels like very desolate and, uh, and well-executed. Uh, and then the second thing is uh, Jeff Bridges. Fantastic performance from Jeff Bridges. Uh, playing kind of this sheriff who's out to get these guys, and really, he's kind of one of those uh, really smart uh, sheriffs, like who, who kind of like knows their stuff, and like he walks onto a crime scene and he's like, "Oh, I know exactly who these people are, what kind of people they are, and what they're trying to do." Like he's kind of one of those people, uh, and I really enjoy seeing characters like that, and I think Jeff Bridges does a great job at uh, portraying that role. So, really like that part as well. And the movie has a lot of heart to it, too. The relationship between Ben Foster and Chris Pine is uh, poignant, and you, you get a sense of the dynamic of what's going on between them and how, how, how much like, they want to say to each other without being able to say things to each other uh, and why they're involved in this crazy scheme that they're doing uh, together. So uh, overall, a lot of great things to like about this movie – and uh, I would recommend it. Hell or High Water, it's probably one of the better films of the summer. Uh, and the summer has been pretty rough this summer. Can, can you guys agree? Like, yeah, this has yeah. been a pretty rough summer mm. for movies. Yeah, man. When Badly. I look, when I look mm-hmm. back on the, the summer, like the movies I think of that I really like are kind of the smaller indie films, right? I, I don't. Yeah. I think Captain America: Civil War was great, but then I think of like Hunt for Wilder People. I think of Sausage Party, and I think of Hell or High Water as like. Some of the better films that I've seen. Yeah, for me, it's um, it's uh, Captain Fantastic, Captain Fantastic, the two right. strings. It's like, yeah, these tinier, yeah, and and you know, Captain America, I, I enjoyed a lot too, but that wasn't even summer. That yeah. was like May. I yeah, mean, yeah. Davinder, mm-hmm. do you have a favorite movie of the summer so <laughs> far? No, I have to think about that. <laughs> All right, no problem. Just just a bit. It may be the Neon Demon, but again, a small indie thing. Mm. Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I am actually really looking forward to Don't Breathe coming out in a couple yep. weeks, guys. Mm-hmm. I have I've seen I've been in movie theaters where I've seen the trailer for Don't Breathe twice, and I can't remember the mm-hmm. last time a movie trailer has gotten that reaction out of it. That's going to be a great crowd movie for sure. Yeah, it's a great crowd because because uh, there's a moment in the trailer. I'm not going to say what happens because I know Jeff probably hasn't seen the trailer, but there's a moment in the trailer where everyone in the actual movie theater 
is holding their breath. <laughs> and it, is it when is it when the title comes up and tells people not to breathe? <laughs> no, no, it's yeah, it's amazing. Like it's amazing. Like just seeing people react in this way. Because um, Jeff, you don't know, do you know what the premise of Don't Breathe is? No. Okay, so it's a fairly. Unique. It's a good movie premise. Yeah, yeah, it's a really, it's a pretty unique movie premise. Uh, so, uh, seeing it like executed pretty well uh, in a trailer, like everyone is just like on the edge of their seat, and so I can't wait to see that movie. So that's another like really small movie. A lot of people like Lights Out. I wasn't a huge fan of that, but that's another movie that came out this summer that uh, people would say is a big surprise. So, the big budget blockbuster films failed us. Uh, but the indie movies yeah. kept it going, man. They kept it going. Yeah, small I, indie I, films. I, I thought even you know the the home runs the the known home runs at the beginning of the the season like Jason Bourne it's going to be a home run no right, there's right, no doubt right. no doubt about it even those X Men man Jeez, Finding Dory everything. Finding Dory you know lived up but uh, other than that it was like the, even any of the big mm-hmm. stuff it just feels like it's a been a summer of disappointment. Yeah, my heart has been broken since X Men. Like, come on. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, uh, so that's what I've been watching. Sausage Party or Hell or High Water, both of those I think would be really enjoyable films uh, to check out. Jeff Kanata, what have you been watching this week? Well, lots of the Olympics. Um, I know we talked about that a little bit last week, but uh, we have a full week of Olympics coverage uh, in the can now. And um, I, I, I feel like you guys expressed some cynicism with regard to the Olympics, and I, I just don't see it. I don't feel it. I, it, it is to me. The Olympics are my anti-Trump. They're, it just makes me feel good about the world again. It, it's yes, I understand the NBC coverage, especially if you're watching NBC proper, is very jingoistic, is very USA centric, and to the exclusion of anybody who might be in another country. Uh, <laughs> that unless it, unless you're you know Usain Bolt or somebody that's like a national celebrity here that just doesn't happen to you know compete for the United States, it's very much focused on stars and i understand that might be problematic for people but man seeing young young people uh, do such amazing things the women's gymnastics team uh katie ledecky even um you know uh, i actually was watching uh, olympics yesterday i saw uh monica puig win the first ever gold medal for puerto rico that was yeah. pretty that was pretty amazing so what, what so those are some or amazing the, moments for you right Go ahead. yeah the um the rugby team from um oh man where is it uh, they, the first ever um, Olympic medal for that country, and I can't remember what country it is. It's awful, but uh, they are they love rugby, and they won the gold medal in rugby. And like the entire country was out in the streets, like watching and celebrating. It, it's an amazing thing that we do this every four years or every two years, really. Uh, and I just I just am swept up in it, and I find the I find the spirit of the Olympics to be such a wonderful salve for some of the negativity that is swirling around this election season. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I just wanted to bring it up again. Jeff plugging the Olympics again. Very cool. Uh, what else? <laughs> well, the, uh, other thing, the other thing I, I would just really quickly I'd get your opinions on. The, the other thing about the Olympics that always it always makes me think – how did the sports that are big sports here become big sports here? Like, why, <laughs> why, do, why do we all watch, you know, why is ice hockey a thing and water polo not a thing? You know, right. water polo is thrilling to watch. <laughs> or, you know, there's so many sports in the Olympics that are these marginal sports that I can get completely wrapped up in during the Olympics. But then if there's a world championships on an off Olympics year, 
there's no way I'm watching it. I will never, <laughs> ever, ever watch it. And yet in the Olympics, I can't take my eyes off it. Like volleyball, it's thrilling to watch five on five volleyball. Why isn't that a thing? Like why, why did baseball take off and ice hockey? Why are those the, like the major sports where people can make millions of dollars? And yet there are all, all of these other competitions that are so TV friendly and interesting to watch. And we have such great people. And it's just, you know, some people that can't be professionals at it because no one watches it. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I wonder. Deeper questions. Yeah, yeah uh, I, I don't. I don't have any satisfying answer to that question. But if you are a <laughs> listener and you know, uh, do write into us at slashfromcastgmail.com. Uh, my very very rough guess would be that uh, it's like you said, Jeff. The amount of interest in those sports, like. Could you get millions of people to watch uh, volleyball if it wasn't a uh, like countries competing like actual whole countries competing against each other? I don't know. Maybe it's the uh, the infrastructure necessary to to broadcast and monetize those sports is just not available. You know, and Jeff, you know, now that now that you bring it up, like how does anything exist? Like who, you know, like, like milk, who thought to themselves like, Hey, let's go up to cows and just like drink whatever comes out of these things. Well, someone who is desperate did that. I I think all food related stuff, somebody tried eating everything on our planet and most people died. And the things that, the things that didn't kill people worked out. But, uh, but for, you know, recreation and sport, like, why is it, fascinating to a large swath of people to watch someone try to get a puck in a net on frozen water but getting a ball into a net on actual water eh who cares Jeff, you know, I think so weird I think you have just found your next job as spokesman for National Water Polo, Polo League do you guys watch the water polo games they're amazing it's a brutal <laughs> intense sport of action like non-stop action and the level of athleticism that's required in water polo it's amazing it's amazing what else have you been watching jeff <laughs> you're like shut up about <laughs> move on um i also watched a few games of water polo guys no um <laughs> the uh <laughs> i know i talked about this last week also but i'm much deeper into the third season of uh bojack horseman and it is one of my favorite shows that's currently in production like that's you know ongoing i i can't speak highly enough about this show i just think it is so insightful and interesting and has such heart and such profound things to say there's an episode i think it's episode four i want to say of this new new season where you know it's an animated show and a lot of the jokes are visual but most of the jokes have to do with voice acting Mm -hmm. so what did they do they did an entire episode where Bojack goes to this underwater hotel for an under for the Pacific it's an underwater Ocean city. It's insane. Underwater city, yeah. The Pacific Ocean Film Festival, and they remove all of the speaking. And the entire episode, they like just take out the thing that you would rely on if you're an animated show, which is the voiceover. And it still works. It's beautiful. Um, the sentiment at the end, he, he writes this letter at the end that says, in this terrifying world, all we have are the connections that we make. And I think that's the kind of the thesis of this show is this – and it, it really struck a chord with me. And it, there's so many hilarious moments, but there's so many profound insights into what it's like to just sort of flail about in the world and try to make connections to people and have relationships and find meaning and that – all the money and fame in the world is hollow 
And what we really need are these human moments. And to have a show about anthropomorphized animals be able to make that point so well is truly an achievement. I love BoJack mm-hmm. Horse. What episode are you through, Jeff? Episode 8. How about you, Davidro? What episode are you through? Oh, I'm done. I've actually rewatched the season twice. Uh, <laughs> I love it. And that season is fantastic. Like, that episode is fantastic. Uh, I, uh, I think I mentioned this before. I just hope... Uh, the creator finds more ground to cover in the next season because it does feel like we've everything you've described, Jeff. It's amazing, but it does feel like the show has beaten uh, beaten a dead horse too much. I guess <laughs> beaten a live horse, yeah, more yeah. like it. <laughs> you I yeah, uh, okay, go ahead, Jeff. There's also a, it, it does amazing things, and there's so many funny things. There's a you know it kind of takes advantage of the fact that it's on Netflix. There's an episode where at the end, what character goes. And then the beginning of the next episode, she goes, yes, it's, yes. it's amazing. It's, okay. it's amazing. There, there's an episode uh, set at the Oscars, like the Oscar nominees. Just yes. like pause that episode and read the uh, the, names the names on the board behind it. Just amazing. Uh, yeah. Well, all the nominees for Best Actor, George Clunertz and and like the Leonardo DiCaprio one, which I can't remember exactly, is hilarious. I lo- uh, there was one that was like best supporting actor. It was like black people question mark and then <laughs> crossed out. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Uh, so Bojack good. Horseman season three is on Netflix right now. I'm through four episodes. Really enjoy it so far. I agree with Devendra though. Like uh, I am wondering if they will quote unquote cover new ground because I feel like they are. Yeah, they already did a lot of those themes in season two really well. Uh, but yeah. Can they do? Can they go beyond that in, in a significant way? We'll see. Yeah. And also, uh, this ends in like a. It's a real bummer, and it's a real bummer that's all Bojack's fault. And I feel not good things about the character right now. Well, I don't know where it's headed, but I I will say I think the the new ground that they've covered in just the most recent seasons is like talking about marriage because we have this really interesting marriage with Mister Peanut Butter and um, what's mm-hmm. her name. And uh, and I think it's it, their marriage, like the difficulty of that and trying to be a good marriage and all that stuff. I, I find that stuff to be unique territory for it to be delving into. I'm, I'm still confused how reproduction works in this yeah, universe. I'm pretty, <laughs> pretty confused about that as well. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Devendra, what That's have you been watching? That's clear as sausages. <laughs> <laughs> what, have, what have you been watching this week? That's clear imagery. So I finally got to see Sing Street, which is John Carney's uh, new film kind of his uh, return to form for uh, small indie things after Begin Again. And uh, this movie is fantastic, guys. Like, if you liked uh, the sort of, like, scrappiness of once, the idea of, like, you know, somebody who doesn't have anything kind of working towards some sort of goal and using music as the basis of that, uh, it's fantastic. This is a movie about a group of kids uh, in Dublin during the 80s. They form a school band. uh, They're kind of the outcasts. And just the sheer amount of, like, emotion... And I don't know, uh, joy that they get from music, I really enjoyed seeing. And uh, there, there's some great fa- family drama around this too. Um, so basically, if you liked Once, this is the follow up you've been waiting for. I adore this movie, and everybody should check it out. I've heard great things about Sing Street as well. Can't wait to You'll check it out. You'll love it, Dave. Yeah, yeah, I think I will. Anything else you've been watching, Devendra? I did finally get to see Carol, the Todd Haynes movie that uh, I think uh, premiered uh, late last year. I know you talked about it a little, Dave, but uh, I I just want to say, like, this movie is astounding. And I'm kind of sad it took me so long to get to it. uh, Because this is a movie built entirely out of quiet moments. And that's a rare thing to see. Um, So much of it is, like, you trying to interpret what characters mean and how they feel based on small little gestures and kind of how maybe somebody touches someone and, you know, 
kind of they react in a way that you didn't expect. Uh, that sort of thing. It's a gorgeous film, kind of a, a very fascinating movie too. So definitely worth checking out at this point. Cool. Nobody, nobody saw um, the Get Down. Nobody watched the Get Down. I have. I wanted to watch it with my wife, but I had to fly to San Francisco. So the Get Down it. is uh, Netflix's new series by Baz Luhrmann, uh, and apparently cost over a hundred million dollars. Hugely yeah. ambitious. It's only like eight episodes, right, or some short yeah, amount. It is too. Well, they only they released the first half. Uh, ah, so I okay. think there's a few episodes. Six, then? Yeah, and then they'll they'll release the second half. Uh, they're all really it, long. They're like the first episode's an hour and twenty. Man, yeah, I've, I've heard it is. I've heard it is wildly uneven. But uh, <laughs> I only I, watched the first episode so far. I, I was hoping you guys were going to bring it up because <laughs> um, I don't know what to think yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's any it right? Yeah. You definitely see the money on the screen. I'll tell you that. I mean, it is it is not um, it is it's amazing to look at and like you know converting an entire like section of a city back into the seventies. It's pretty impressive visually. <laughs> how, like they, it's it's not faked. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, Most but, movies do that these days, so that's cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, that's the get down. It's on Netflix, and yeah, I'm eager to check out uh, Baz Luhrmann's newest creation because visually, at least, he's always uh, a very talented stylist. <laughs> Uh, the movie you were talking about, Divinger, was Carol. You mentioned how beautiful it was. It was shot in super 16 millimeter, uh, on super 16 millimeter film, I should say. So, uh, one of our, you know, last movies maybe that's shot on film. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yeah, it does look great. And it has a look that is difficult to replicate without film. Um, but, uh, I, I think it, it pays off because, you know, it's a period film. So, uh, I enjoyed the movie. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know that I liked it quite as much as you. Uh, but the performances are excellent. So that's Carol, and it's available on streaming and on home video. That's what we've been watching this week. A uh, few news items I just want to mention. First of all, Kenny Baker has passed away. Uh, and he is the guy who played R2-D2 in the original Star Wars films. So very sad. He also uh, had roles in Amadeus, Labyrinth, Time Bandits, Willow, and The King and I. Uh, but just wanted to give a shout out to Kenny Baker uh, as uh, you know a, a beloved actor who played a beloved character uh, in a role that uh, it, like would probably have been impossible to predict that that would be like s such a I mean just the idea of this droid <laughs> like I just can't putting my like trying to get into the mind of George <laughs> Lucas at the time and the idea that hey there's going to be this droid who's going to mm -hmm. be really cute, and he's going to need to move around and do things, and we, we don't have the technology to operate this droid, so we need to just put someone inside of it. Well, that's the yeah. crazy part to me, is that, that they needed to put a person in there right. at all. Mm -hmm. is, is, in, <laughs> is insane. You know, it's a little crazy. Yeah, that's uh, sort of like all the magic of Star Wars, though, yeah. right? Like, we didn't yeah. know how any of this would work. A giant bear dude? What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, props to... Uh, to Kenny Baker for uh, being part of you know a, a property that has uh, now touched the lives of billions of people. Another thing I want to mention that happened this week is that uh, some more like news came out about Ghostbusters. Basically, like sometimes it takes a few weeks for the true success of a film from a box office perspective to come into focus, and we need to acknowledge that Ghostbusters, the 2016 Paul Feig movie is a box office disappointment. Hmm. This movie has made $121 million domestically. It cost uh, $144 million. 
and you know, it's I, I think it's not playing in China due to China's aversion to movies that deal in the occult. So uh, <laughs> worldwide, it's only made sixty-two million dollars for a total of one hundred eighty-four million dollars worldwide. Uh, now to compare, like Pixels. The Adam Sandler film directed by Chris Columbus, which was widely regarded as a bomb last year, made $244 million worldwide. So significantly more money was made by Pixels than Ghostbusters, which you know, had a ton more like, like awareness and marketing uh, around it. And so, That's the difference between having a movie about the occult and making a deal with the occult. Oh, nice, Jeff. See what that is? <laughs> I like that. I like that. So, yeah, uh, it's looking like – so some people are reporting that the movie will lose $70 million. Pe- representatives from the company say, no, that's not correct. You're not taking into account a bunch of revenue streams. Whatever the case, it might not be a financial disaster for the for the movie studio, but it is not the success that I think a lot of people were looking for. You know, They wanted a uh, franchise restarter. They wanted a movie that would uh, bring us m- multiple Ghostbusters films far into the future. Uh, so at this point, looking very unlikely that we're going to see another Ghostbusters film. But there's uh, a post-credit scene that promised me more. <laughs> well, uh, like with many post-credit scenes, Jeff, or many entire movies, it's looking like it's going to let you down. Uh, maybe maybe it was just a sign to go back and watch the earlier Ghostbusters mm, movies. Mm, yeah. This is a bummer because I, I really liked this team and I thought it was fun. I really had a great <laughs> time watching this movie. Uh, I would say in a in a summer of of real massive disappointment, this was a high spot for me, and uh, it's it's a it's a bummer that I feel like the haters won here, which is which is too bad. I don't know if I'd go that far, but yeah, it it definitely is a disappointment. I feel like like looking back on the whole mess, I'm not talking even about the film, just talking about all the lead up to the film and all the complaints. I think the biggest bummer for me is that they didn't feel. Uh, like they could strike out and do their own thing from mm-hmm. the plot of the film. Like it feels so much like a retread of the original uh, and all the slavish uh, mentions and, you know, designs of all the all the uh, technology and all that stuff. Like it just feels like it was trapped in, quote unquote, trapped in the uh, in the past. And the ghost? Uh, and I, the ghost of the past. <laughs> and I feel like it, uh, if, if they had done their own thing and... and um, charted new mm-hmm. territory you know like then at least we would have a movie that like kind of uh, like made its own contribution mm-hmm. into pop culture that was entirely separate from what came before uh and it feels like you know i don't know like if i had to recommend a ghostbusters movie i don't know if i would recommend the new one like if oh, someone yeah. if i was like if i was gonna sh- jeff if you're gonna show your kid you know ghostbusters like what movie would you choose to introduce I love Wheel Podageurs by Nukes. Its amazing texture leaves my skin so soft and hair shiny. I know, it's my favourite too. But have you tried the new Wheel Podageurs Floral by Nukes? It has the same formula as the original oil, but with a fresh and delicate scent. It's so addictive. Use the code FLORAL and get 20% off all Nukes products at uk.nukes.com. If I'd seen this movie... When I was eight, I would be just as excited about Ghostbusters as I was when I right, saw the right. real ghost, you know, the first Ghostbusters. I shouldn't say real. The first Ghostbusters <laughs> when I was eight. Um, I predict, I could be wrong, but I predict this movie is going to have long, long legs as a cult film. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think people 10, 15 years, ago, years from now are going to 
still reference Holtzman and and some of this stuff in, in a way that a lot of movies that flopped at the box office that became you know cult hits uh, are referenced. I mean, I'd hope so. My bigger worry is that uh, what does this mean for like future reboots or remakes of like you know. Uh, big franchises like does this mean like hey maybe let's not take any chances like in terms of how we cast or how we position things because maybe they're going to blame the fan uproar for you know how badly the movie is done yeah, that being said uh apparently this oceans remake is coming into focus yep. with uh, like an all-female oceans movie might happen uh and i think that's a remake of a remake yeah so <laughs> so that's kind of that's kind of what I'm it. talking about. Like, that, w- let me just clarify my remarks from earlier about like if I had to show someone a Ghostbusters film, I don't know if this is one I would show them because I feel like it's not different enough that I wouldn't just show them the original. Like, if mm-hmm. you think of like Ocean's Eleven, if you had to show someone an Ocean's movie, which one would you show them? Ocean's Eleven, the Steven Soderbergh movie, right? Yeah. Not the quote unquote original Ocean's movie because that one, the the Steven well, Soderbergh movie, like breaks new ground yeah. and is like a completely different concept and execution. Well, and, also because it was contemporary to you, right? If yes, if you're yes. 80. You know, and you, you, the the Oceans movie that you remember growing up with, maybe mm-hmm. that's the one you would want to show your kid. I, 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 you know, I, 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 I don't agree. I think yeah. another example is like Psycho. Okay, which one would you show? The Gus Van Sant one or that's the ridiculous. Alfred Hitchcock? That's a that's complete a re- shot for shot remake. Come okay, on. you're yeah. right. No, that's fair, fair enough. But I, mean, I guess I'm, I'm saying like – I mean, I, I don't know that it matters the contemporary of it. Like, or, or it does, I, is it, like Clooney is cool, but is he as cool, cool as Sinatra? I don't know. The one that has most meaning to you is probably yeah. the one that you watched at a at a certain time in your life that is important. I, um, I think that that's true. I don't think. Yeah. Okay. Right, I, I think that's a fair point. I think that's a fair point. I mean, I think kids today are going to be most excited to show their kids The Force Awakens, not <laughs> A New Hope. Right. A New Hope has meaning to us. And, it, and I think it probably has meaning to them in in a tangential way. But the the Star Wars movie that's going to resonate for them, that's going to be their touchstone, is The Force Awakens. Right. And so you're saying that Ghostbusters achieves that level of uh, quality as like The Force Awakens, right? Like the or the equivalent I, of that. Well, it's more like for, the feel, the experiential feeling. It's not even the quality of it. it. Doesn't have to be good. It's just yeah, what people get in contact with first. Yeah, I think that it, it was as entertaining an experience as the first movie was for me. And I think that it conveys the the magic of that concept, which is, hey, ghosts are everywhere. There's these people that are going to use science <laughs> hey, to kids, take up them. ghosts are everywhere. Uh, be but terrified. like in a fun way, in a fun way, not, <laughs> and not in a don't get out of your bed way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I, I think that's uh, that makes sense, Jeff. Uh, maybe my point was – Incoherent or poorly uh, expressed, but uh, I think you're right that there are probably a lot of people who, like, if they show their kids a Ghostbusters movie, it might be this new one. So it's very, uh, it's very possible. Uh, the, the only other thing I, I will say though is I don't know that I would classify Ghostbusters the new one as even capable of becoming a cult film. I guess I, I feel like I guess I feel like cult films are are those that don't. Like that didn't cost like 150 million dollars and get yeah. a nationwide release and make over 100 million dollars. It's too successful to be a cult film. Yeah, and exactly. Not successful it, it, enough to be a hit. Yeah, that's I, I agree with Devinder's assessment. I feel like cult films can't have been even as successful as the new Ghostbusters was in order to be cult films. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I don't know. I would argue that Caddyshack and the original Ghostbusters are cult films. I think they they built a cult around them, and you people who know every word and quote them. Just because they were also successful movies doesn't mean they aren't yeah. cult films. I mean, that, that's, I guess, the following. But I guess the way I see cult films is more like uh, something nobody saw or everybody rejected. 
when they first saw it. And that that wasn't true of Caddyshack or Ghostbusters. Mm, yeah, I, I I think it depends on like how you define cult films, and mm-hmm. which it, seems, yeah. it seems like there's a there's a difference on this podcast, just as there was with uh, cultural relevance. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> well, cult film- uh, either way, I, I <laughs> my my prediction here is that I think this movie is going to have a audience that loves it despite its quote unquote financial success. Um, for a long time, I, I I believe that, and I, I could be wrong, but I I think it's it's the, mm-hmm. the characters are so iconic, like, and the jokes are quotable, and I think that those those are the qualities that make something memorable for a niche audience. Uh, there's one other thing I wanted to mention that happened this week, and that is that Pajiba.com, uh, a site that I really enjoy and admire, published a a piece called An Open Letter to Warner Brothers CEO Kevin Sujihara <laughs> about layoffs, Zack Snyder, and Donuts. Uh, it had a byline by Gracie Law, which, uh, as we all know, is not a, like, it's not a real person's name. I mean, it's uh, the Kim Cattrall character from... Oh, that to Gracie Law. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it's from the Kim Cattrall character in uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Am I right about that? Yes. Um, so uh, we don't know who wrote it. But it's, uh, it purports to be someone who used to work at Warner Brothers who basically just like lays into Kevin Sujihara, the CEO, in like a really uh, personal way, right? Talking about how this per- the, the author of this article has experienced layoffs and, uh, and is flummoxed by what they see as the continual rewarding of people who are creating bad films like uh, Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad mm-hmm. like why basically why is Zack Snyder still allowed to uh manage the DC Comics universe uh given that he has made uh, has overseen uh, Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad which everyone you know the, widely regarding the critical community as terrible films uh, like, and, and it goes into like you know the people at the top, like they keep getting rewarded. It's the below the line people uh, and, and the people who are working in the offices that are going to get laid off and suffer uh, when these movies do badly. Why is Kevin? Why is Zack Snyder still allowed to direct Justice League? You know, like th- that's these are the questions that this letter is asking. There's one thing that this uh, letter says that a lot of people are latching onto. Jeff Kanata, what is it? Now I'm only saying this. I'm only saying this because I have it in front of me, not because people are going to say Jeff wanted to say it because it's so great he gets to talk sh- crap about DC. No, I'm just I just happened to have it in front of me here because we're looking at the internet uh, tattooed onto your arm. Uh, I know. God, so many people this week. By the way, um, it says, uh, "What are you even doing? I wish to God you were forced to live out of a car until you made a number one movie of the year. Maybe Wonder Woman wouldn't be such a mess. Don't try to hide behind the great trailer." People inside are already confirming it's another mess. It is almost impressive how you keep rewarding the same producers and executives for making the same mistakes over and over. So uh, this has just stirred up a whole shitstorm. Like, every- do we have confirmation that this person is actually a person, or it's not some just internet person mm-hmm. throwing mud at at the wall? Right. I don't know. I guess like I I know and trust the. Uh, creator of Pajiba.com, yeah, Justin yeah. Rawls. You know, so I, I don't. It doesn't feel to me like the kind of thing where he would just uh, publish this like without verifying that this person has actually worked at Warner Brothers and might have the sources that are being alluded to here. 
uh, it just doesn't feel like within his MO to do something like that. Uh, but that's my experience with him. Maybe I'll reach out to him this week and ask him for sure. Uh, but I, I, I would say, like, I would be willing to bet money that this is an authentic report. So, right now. Uh, <laughs> that's worrisome if so, then, right? If, if, if this person is alleging that people inside the production of Wonder Woman are disheartened by what they're seeing... I think all of us are, you know, with each each new DC universe movie, we're all hoping that they turn that corner and go, okay, finally we'll have the one that makes us excited and makes us into this whole concept of this universe. And I think this a lot time, of people, including myself, are pinning a lot of hopes on Wonder Woman. So <laughs> Patty Jenkins, director of Wonder Woman, has responded to this. Uh, she tweeted out, whoa, just saw this press about Warner's uh, Wonder, Wonder Woman. Woman. Sorry. Um, whoa, just saw this press about Wonder Woman having problems. Are they serious? That is some made-up BS right there. Made up. Produce a source, anyone. Zero about the movie we are making has been called a mess by anyone in the know. Fact. So that is Patty Jenkins saying that this report is complete BS. Uh, I, I think it's zero. All- zero about – she <laughs> talked to the craft services people. I bet they've been calling some things a mess. But are they in the know, Jeffrey? That's oh, the I question. I mean so – this this just reminds me of a quote-unquote movie I've seen before, guys, which is – I remember when Drew McQueenie talked about at HitFix uh, how Batman v Superman – he was hearing that uh, it was not the movie that execs wanted to see, that it was kind of a mess. And he he just repeated these reports. All He, did, he didn't even like editorialize too much. He just said, hey, it was like an offhanded comment that he made. Offhanded comment in like a video blog that he made about like, hey, yeah, so I'm hearing like things aren't so great. And then like move on to another topic. Everyone latched onto that, right? Uh, and then like the DC fans came out in force as they have in this article at SlashFilm.com basically like accusing SlashFilm.com and all the press of like – propagating their anti-DC agenda. Then the movie comes out confirming everything that was said (laughs) negative about the film, rinse and repeat. Uh, Now, I don't know if that's going to happen this time. You know, uh, I don't know. I hope not. I want people to understand how much I want Wonder Woman to be great. I really do. I'm hoping for it. I know that so many people in our talk back and so many tweets I got this week told me that I'm, I'm, in the pocket of Disney, and I love Marvel so much that I just I, – it brings me such joy to take a crap on Suicide Squad and Batman v Superman. And I just live for it. I live to destroy DC movies and just – I get so excited to defend Marvel and it's not based on any facts or actual opinions. It's just this blind devotion to a brand, which is horseshit, people. It's horseshit. The, Come on. Well, well, Jeff, I want these movies you, to be great. Can so I believe you, Jeff, when you say you want these movies to be great. Do you acknowledge that uh you are predisposed to like Marvel films though? Like I, se- I say than over DC, and over, yeah. I grew up preferring Marvel characters. I've said that many I you know, I always say Marvel Zombie from way back. It but that But that that, love, that doesn't mean you're out to get Right, and it also doesn't mean I want to give Marvel movies a pass for things. I know people perceive that, and and maybe I get more excited to see uh, you know a a very obscure Marvel character done right than I would seeing a very obscure DC character done right. That's fair. That's a fair assessment. 
But if I saw a very obscure DC character done right, I would still be still be so excited and love it. I want that to happen. I want that to happen. Uh, I believe you. I believe you. Uh, I think that all of us go into these movies hoping they'll be good. I, I, that's something that's not understood. That like we the cr- critics don't have some crazy agenda. You know, it it's, doesn't. There's it's no silly. It's silly for it. me to even say. It feels silly for me to even say it. What could we possibly get out of ruining your enjoyment of a DC movie? Well, if I went into a great movie and I was like, "Fuck, this movie's so good," I better tell people it's shitty so that it can ruin their enjoyment. What motivation is there for that? I don't care. I don't care. It doesn't take away from anything. Like. There could be great Marvel movies and great DC movies, and they could be both exist in the marketplace and be awesome. I wish that was the case. I love Superman. I love Batman. You know, I want I want these movies to be amazing. I praised the Dark Knight to the high heavens. You know, like we call, we gave that our movie of the year uh, at the Totally Rad Show. We awarded it the Totally Rad Movie of the Year that year. I have nothing against DC. I just I want things these to be good. Yeah. Uh, I think we all do, but even just seeing the comments on this post about the Wonder Woman dust up, it feels like uh, th- people are taking sides in a really intense way uh, that I fear has no end in sight. <laughs> you know, I until mean, the until we learn from Batman versus Superman, right, is that you have to take sides for your heroes and watch them fight right. to the death. Until DC comes out with a good film. Right, and then it's like, oh, wait, maybe the movie critics don't just have it out for them; they just want to uh, no. evaluate films that are good. Like, I, when, I don't think we'll have that realization. Sadly, <laughs> you don't think Wonder I Woman mean, will be much good? of this conversation is just there's a sentiment of like anti, um, I don't know, anti expert, anti elites, and that's like the people who think you know user reviews are the only true way to figure out what things mean. Uh, you know, it's most of it's inexplicable, and until people like come to the realization of their own that, uh, yeah, some of the stuff uh, we're, we're not just making up, yeah, that, that's just the sentiment in the culture right now. I do think that it is kind of crazy that this like one person saying this one anonymous person saying I've heard from people inside. It's kind of a mess. Like it, it is just kind of insane to me that that can spark. Such a potent reaction. Like yeah. I think, I think it only becomes a story because everyone gets so pissed at it. Like if if people just let it pass without mentioning it, I don't know that it would become such a huge story. Maybe, maybe it would. Maybe people would well, say would still reblog it and saying Insider says Wonder Woman's a mess, and then that that is what causes it. But I, I guess I feel like it just feels like so much more higher in magnitude. Than it needs to be. It's it's just one anonymous person saying they heard something that they might they heard from someone that might have heard from someone. You know, like that's all it is. Uh, but well, people- it's it's pretty strong language that they're using. You know, there's there's it's in the context of a rail against the whole structure is flawed. Right. Because their their point is that you know the same people are making the same mistakes. And if if you are someone that cares deeply about these characters, and these are characters that people care about very deeply so if you're one of those people any news that the the problems that you may have experienced up to this point are continuing and being reinforced i think is big news it just feels like 
it, it's so uh, subjective. You know what I mean? Like sure. whether or not the movie's a mess or not is so subjective. Uh, and so that you heard one person say that they heard that it, it is bad is like, it, you know, there's probably a hundred people who think it's good. You know, it just it really is weird to me. But there's a pattern here, right? Of <laughs> of a of a trailer coming out and everybody going, oh my gosh, that looks so awesome! You know, Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, Suicide Squad, all of these movies. Right. The trailer has just floored people, and everybody's gotten so excited. And then the the film itself, while very entertaining for a large portion of the audience, there is also a big contingent, myself included. That has been really disappointed by these movies. I didn't. I wasn't on the trailer bandwagon, obviously, but you know, I think people feel like they can't trust their own instincts. And when you hear someone that has "quote unquote" inside information, yeah, it, it is given much more weight than it might otherwise be because mm-hmm. every other indication seems to be flawed. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. And we've seen this pattern already, like you said, Jeff, and we'll see if it repeats itself. But I would just say take these things take these things with a grain of salt, folks. Uh, I mean, I, if I only think, there was some sort of lasso of truth that we could use. Uh, yeah, to get perhaps. people to say exactly the truth. <laughs> okay, guys, Wonder Woman reference. Bam, nailed it. Nicely nailed done. it. All right, let's move on. Uh, that's film news for this week. Before we get to our review, we've got to thank all the people that donated to the Slash Filmcast. Thanks to Sophie Elizabeth Johnson from Norway. Veronica from Poland, Freelance from the UK, uh, and Sebastian H. from Norway for your donations. Thanks also to new subscribers, Lion Johansson and Wendy Austin for subscribing at the rate of $2 per month. Uh, you can contribute to the Slash Filmcast, help us defray the cost of seeing films by going to slashfilm.com, click on the Slash Filmcast tab, and use the PayPal links on the side of the page. Um, David Lipton from the UK also donated this week, uh, and he donated a really sizable amount of money. And so uh, he also included with his donation a question that I thought I'd pose to you guys on the Slash Filmcast. Uh, David Lipton is an English teacher, and he wants you all to recommend your favorite book. Ooh, so you guys have a favorite, favorite book that Love you want it. to recommend. Hmm. 1984. Always relevant. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Especially this it's year. It's true. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. yeah. I read that book in like uh, junior high. It warped my mind, and uh, I think it prepared me for this future. How about you, Jeff Kanata? I have a I have a really hard time picking one favorite book. Um, I would I have a Goodreads profile that I update and try to put pretty comprehensive um, uh, reviews on. So if anybody wants to go check out my Goodreads profile, you should. I, wow, Jeff, one hundred and forty-four books. Well, that's not <laughs> that's not every book I've ever read. Uh, did you just look up my? I did. Goodreads? I did. And Jeff, if it was every book you'd ever read, that is still pretty impressive. No, 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 no. That's, <laughs> That's not impressive at all, uh, and it's it's not. Uh, I should I shouldn't have used the word comprehensive. In the last couple of years, I've tried to write reviews of every of of books as I finish them, and I'm not super consistent, but a lot of good books there. Anyway, the the books uh, the book that I usually um, reference as my favorite uh, is a Neil Stevenson trilogy, actually, but it's really one work. It's called the Baroque Cycle. Oh yeah, it's really big and really dense and really crazy. It's so audaciously ambitious. It's it's wild, but it's so fun to read. And it's it's kind of about it's about it's like Sir Isaac Newton is a main character. Um, it's a historical fiction, uh, sort of about the birth of currency 
and it goes back and forth between modern day and uh, you know Sir Isaac Newton's time. Uh, really, really, really entertaining book and a, a great read. It, it makes you feel smarter after you read it because you learn so much as you're being entertained on this adventure. It's great. Uh, I'm going to throw out a boring uh, example, guys. Uh, I, I really like reading nonfiction. Um, <laughs> and uh, to be fair, I have not thought of this the answer to this question until now. So like, upon further consideration, my answer might change. But the, the book that comes to mind that I most enjoy, that, that I can remember most enjoy reading and that I feel like was kind of like epic in terms of the drama uh, and also like what, what was going on, like the actual facts of the case, is um, a, a book called uh, A Civil Action, which was made into a Stephen Zalian film directed by uh, – or starring John Travolta. Uh, do you guys remember that movie? Any of you see that movie, Civil Action? I don't remember. No. Oh, really? Wow. It's, John it's, Travolta's Civil Action? It's got one of those titles that is generic enough to be <laughs> like – was it a – Movie I saw or not? This is a yeah court movie. Somehow. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, runaway I mean, jury. The the yeah. book, the, uh, the movie was only okay. You know, John Travolta is is playing John Travolta basically, um, but it's basically uh, about what happens when um, like people find out that like a a company has been uh, dumping like. Uh, chemicals into the environment and getting a lot of people sick and the, the you know the the, Is that main... the movie where he like he has like a thousand parking or uh, speeding tickets in his car in his glove compartment and he like stops in the woods and throws them all out mm, i don't remember that one there's a travolta <laughs> mo- i think i saw it. i think i saw that's that. essential to the uh, poison water plot yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah i don't think i think jeff, i saw this movie. focus jeff focus jeff <laughs> he has a porsche um, the only thing I remember from that movie is this uh, line in the tra- – I think that's in the trailer when someone says to him like uh, – like John Travolta is playing uh, a lawyer who's trying to take on this big company and it is an incredibly costly case. And someone says to him like, hey, like you're running out of money and John Travolta says, mortgage my house. And he says uh, – the guy says, I already did. <laughs> you know, that's, oh. a, that's the one line I, I remember from that trailer. Uh, anyway, it is a riveting – book uh and uh, uh, like a really interesting uh look into kind of uh, what this kind of case would be and also the mindset of someone that would try and tackle uh, a case like this where they would like go against a, a big company with almost unlimited resources so that's Is a civil john travolta, action john travolta good in the book version uh no he's actually <laughs> doesn't appear because it's a book jeff oh um so. well, i'm not reading it <laughs> all right is it the movie where nick cage tries to be john travolta no that was a good movie that's face off actually oh yeah that was a good book good job Georgia. yeah, that yeah. Was a good book. <laughs> all right thanks for your contributions to the slash film cast let's move on to our review of pete's dragon i was out here at the eastern pad but that's 50 miles east from where we found him hey Wait, 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 wait. Do you know where your parents are? Your family? I guess he was on a picnic or a camping trip. He wandered off and got himself lost. Been out in the woods, doing things his own way. Sounds like a boy after your own heart. How long has he been out there? Six years. Nobody can survive in that forest for six years. At least not alone. You'll see. I have Elliot. That was from the trailer for Peach Dragon, the newest film by uh, writer-director David Lowry. 
Uh, and it stars Bryce Dallas Howard, Robert Redford, uh, Wes Bentley, Carl Urban, and a bunch of other talented people. I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb right now. Uh, the adventures of an orphaned boy named Pete and his best friend Elliot, who just so happens to be a dragon. Uh, so let me ask you guys this question. Like, how many of you know about the original Pete's Dragon, right? This is yeah. a live action combined mm-hmm. with, with animation, Animation, right? yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I remember seeing it. it was, I don't remember it having a big impact on me. Jeff Kanata? It was, it was a staple of my – I think my dad recorded it off of HBO. And we had, I had it on VHS when I was a kid. So it was a staple of my VHS watching life. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember details because I probably haven't seen it since I was 10 at the yeah. latest. But um, I definitely remember loving it. And I, I, remember, uh, I, I remember how 70s it was <laughs> or like early 80s it was. Um, and I remember the the look of the dragon being so different. He's like portly little. Actually, yeah, the, this fat. movie this movie borrows a lot of the look of the dragon. <laughs> it's pretty good. But yeah, uh, the, his face is very similar in this movie. But uh, I remember loving it. I just don't remember details of the movie. Yeah, nor I. I remember watching it. Like when I see the image, I'm like, I definitely saw that at some point. But I don't really remember anything about that the original. It's like the drug trip, sure. Kids <laughs> movie. Yeah, 1977. The original was. Yeah. So yeah, it is 70s. Yeah. David Laurie uh, is uh, – he used to be an editor. Uh, he's made a bunch of short films. Uh, but really, like for me, he burst onto the scene in 2013 when he directed a film called Ain't Them Body Saints, which I thought was a beautiful film, very well acted and uh, kind of a great w- modern western. Uh, and so I was a bit surprised when I heard that he'd be <laughs> taking on Pete's Dragon, uh, a big budget – or not even big budget, like moderately large budget. A big Disney, Disney movie. Disney yeah. film, right? Can I say one other one other quick thing about the '77 version? Yeah, uh, one of the things that I remember uh, about it is uh, it, it stars Jim Dale, who, <laughs> which he, he's amazing. If you uh, ever listened to any of the Harry Potter audiobooks, Jim Dale is the remarkable voice talent that did all of the Harry Potter books and he does, you know, hundreds and hundreds of voices. Those audiobooks are spectacular. He's one of the best people in the world at doing that. And this is one of the few movies where you get to see him like, you know, live action in the flesh. Like he's, you know, he has an actual role in it, not just his voice. So anyway, I thought that was a pretty cool tidbit. Gotcha. So anyway, Pete Dragon, the new one. Uh, not a movie that I thought David Lowry would be working on, but I think he's super talented. I also think the project is kind of interesting, this kind of live-action remake of uh, this cartoon live-action hybrid that a lot of people seem to enjoy. Um, so, yeah, didn't really know what to expect going in. Uh, Jeff Kanata, what did you think of Pete's Dragon? Um, I have to admit, uh, I did not love it. Uh, and, and I recognize that the movie is very sweet and it's um it's got heart and i enjoy those things but i i thought it was just fine it's fine um i think that there's a lot of really beautiful imagery and i thought that the animation of uh the dragon elliot in the film is is really well done it's a it's beautifully realized the effects integrate with the with the actors in a in really believable way but that's to be expected we've gotten to that point with effects like there's no surprise that a digital character looks real um interesting that you know this is a dragon doesn't have scales right he has fur uh but it's an interesting look and it i think it makes makes the idea that he's more like a pet or um 
you know, it, it definitely there, it evokes having a dog when you're a kid that, that you love. Um, and there's a lot of emotion conveyed through just the animation of the, the facial expression of the dragon. Like you understand what it's thinking at all times. And if it has con- concern for Pete at any point, you get it. All that stuff, all those technical things. I think the movie does really, really well. But it, it still felt a little flat to me just because it, it kind of just moves through what you expect the three-act structure of this kind of movie to be. And nothing particularly profound is expressed. Nothing particularly impactful happens. Uh, I feel the act turns happening. And a lot of this is the fact that this is a movie made for young people who haven't seen a lot of movies and, um, and that's fine. Like I think if I was a little kid, I would, I would love this movie in the way that I loved the original Peach Dragon when I was a little kid. And it probably doesn't hold up to scrutiny as an adult person to me now. I haven't seen it in many years, so I don't know, but I, I suspect that's the case. Um, and I just feel like this movie, it was just okay. You know, like I, I, I didn't well up with emotion as I think the movie wanted me to. I thought the beginning was really beautiful uh, and there's a lot of really beautiful things. I love seeing Robert Redford on the screen. He's always great. But I don't really know a lot about these characters by the end. Uh, I, you know, the bad man is kind of bad and the good people are good. And they're really it, it isn't really ever any more complex than that. And I care for the dragon and I care for Pete and that's all fine. It's just fine. It was just It just kind of was what I expected and I didn't connect with it in any deeper way than that and uh i can i can understand uh that reaction it kind of reminded me of the bfg in some ways right Mm -hmm. where it's basically like there's not that much plot you know it's the uh, our main character or the protagonist discovers this wonderful creature and that's basically the film like that is that is there's some stuff that happens at the end but really it's about the connection between this creature and the protagonist, and that's mm-hmm. it. And uh, uh, I personally don't particularly enjoy that kind of uh, plot structure, but I know a lot of people do, and I agree with you, Jeff. If I had been a kid, I would really love this movie. Uh, but I do have some positive things to say about it. I'll wait until after Devinder shares his thoughts, though. Yeah, I have to say, I'm a little surprised, Jeff. I feel like this movie is programmed to tear at your heart and soul yeah. as it is right now, as you're preparing to have a child and everything. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's. Uh, I, I totally see what you're saying too. It's uh, this is a movie that hits all the typical Disney kids movie, you know, act structures and everything. It feels like we've seen this movie before, and we literally have to. Uh, but at the same time, like there is just so much. I don't know. This is a really graceful movie in a way that we don't normally see, especially from Disney, I guess too. Although I, this is the second lost uh, kid movie from Disney after Jungle Book, right? And that was also another movie where they got somebody with a, you know, less conventional sort of voice, like a very specific cinematic voice to tell that story. And John Favreau, I think, is a big reason why the Jungle Book worked so well. And now with Pete's Dragon, it seems like they're kind of repeating that too, right? David Lowry, uh, Ain't Them Body Saints, is a beautiful lyrical movie. It's unlike anything, you know, out there, even today. Um, I've seen some of his shorts too. Like he is always trying to aim at something. Uh, I don't know. There, there's a lyricalness and a playfulness to his direction that I think is always interesting. Uh, and you see him kind of tackle that here too. Uh, yeah, the basic plot structure isn't that 
uh, complicated or exciting even, but the relationship between Pete and Elliot, um, the way, you know, yeah, that opening sequence where Pete loses his parents is, um, it's heart wrenching and it's weirdly quiet in a way too. Like it's weirdly naive, um, because I think in many movies it would be a really loud traumatic event. Mm-hmm. And in the way it's portrayed here, it's like, Oh, something playful is happening. It's almost maybe, serene. Yeah, yeah, it's a little serene. And the kids kids in the audience may not understand really what happened, but I think right. that's like a gut punch to parents and, and adults watching this movie. But the relationship between Pete and Elliot um, is just so – it's so organic in a way. Um, I love the child actor, Oakes Fegley. Uh, is that – is he the young yeah. Pete or is he – No, he's, he's – uh... He's Pete. Pete. He's the one. Pete, we see, Pete. He's the one, older Pete. See, yeah, the one we see. But even the younger one, the younger kid, they got to play him in that opening sequence. Like there's just like a, a very quiet, uh, I don't know, drama to this entire movie. And I think that younger actor was great too. Um, this is a movie that definitely handles all the big Disney beats, but it does so in a way that's so different. It feels the voice of it. Uh, this is a beautiful movie. The score is amazing. The way it kind of all wraps together. The experience of watching this movie, there's just so much to it that you don't normally find or most people don't care about. I feel like every sequence in this movie uh, was uh, David Lauer really thought about how things were put together and how it was shot. So I like that. I like that specific voice, um, even though it's for a very familiar story. Uh, So I think I probably came in in between you guys. I liked the movie. Uh, I didn't think it was great. A lot of people are saying it's wondrous and... Yeah, there are some moments of wonder in it. Yeah, um, and but Dave, you're the biggest How to Train Your Dragon fan. This is How to Train Your in Dragon. The world. This is yeah. How to Train Your Dragon without the action, yeah. basically. Like that's yeah. what yeah. Pete's Dragon is. Well, it's and also without any of the the specifics that make How to Train Your Dragon such an interesting universe. Like that, the the part of the fun of How to Train Your Dragon is all of the the specific ways in which dragons are integrated into that universe, right. and all of the characters are so fun and interesting. This is this is like how to train your dragon bland version. It's how to train your dragon in the real world, in the in like an actual kind of New England sure. logging I town. I guess. I know? guess it seems like and without the action, more Pacific the Northwest, I think. Oh, really? The way this is structured, yeah. Gotcha. Uh, one of those deciduous forest areas. Uh, so, yeah, I, I like the movie. I think um, not much happens in the movie. You know, Jeff. I think uh, <laughs> like you can you can basically predict. The plot of the movie, like sure, if you if you if you watch the first fifteen minutes, you can predict the plot of the movie. Yeah, uh, we're not going to understand this thing. Yeah, yeah it's going to be problems. Yeah. So, and <laughs> yeah. that's basically that's basically the whole plot. Here's what makes the movie good, though, for me is firstly, I think the uh, child actor that they got for this film uh, is <laughs> really really good, and I, I think he's he's convincing in a way that let's say the main actor of the Jungle Book was not convincing for me. Sure. Although I'd say the uh, the difference here too is that uh, Oaks Fegley actually had real real environments. He had places. Yeah, yeah it, actually, it looks like they actually shot on location in the forest yeah. versus like yeah. shooting on a jungle soundstage. But yeah, um, it's much more believable. As an he, actor. he feels much more believable, and like he, just in these subtle things, like there's a scene where Pete uh, hears a noise and like scrambles towards a window. And the way he moves his body, it still feels like he's back in the forest. It still feels mm-hmm. like he's using his old ways of uh, of moving around. And I just found that performance to be so convincing and uh, and really great. So that's that's uh, a great element of the film. And for me, the question of whether this movie succeeds is whether or not 
you feel something for Pete and his dragon, the connection yeah. between them. Do you feel something by the end of the film uh, for that relationship? And the answer for me was yes. I could mm-hmm. not deny that the answer was yes, and and the ending of the film was moving to me. And, and for that reason, I think the movie is successful. Uh, but it has a lot of the problems that you described, Jeff. You know, like I, I didn't. I don't think it was. It did a lot of creative things with that premise. Uh, but it did what it tried to do very well. Uh, it was very competent, and uh, overall, I enjoyed it. And I certainly think it's a movie that I think like I'd be happy to show my kids as an example, which I don't have any right now. But I'm saying if I did, I would be open to that. <laughs> um, is this a movie that you'll show your uh, kid, Jeff? Do you think like is this? One I don't of those- think this is like top shelf. You know, can't wait to show my kid Pete's Dragon. I I think it's fine, and I certainly wouldn't have a problem showing it to my kid. I think that they would probably enjoy it very much. I I just think there are much more. This thing has been done better, and uh, I mean not not by the original Pete's Dragon, but just as you said, like How to Train Your Dragon does it better. Um, I'm sure there's a bunch of things I could come up with, but the idea is the the fantastical pet that you have a connection to that nobody else understands but you is a trope that is mm-hmm. oft used and done, I think, in a more more sophisticated way than this movie does it. But yeah, I, I'm, like I said, it's fine. It's not a bad movie <laughs> at all. It's really well done. And there are, there are really lovely moments, like some of the stuff where Pete and the dragon are just like running together and, and just j- joyously enjoying mm-hmm. the outdoors. Uh, that stuff is really fun and, and – great or, or how they like will curl up together in the cave and sleep you know every, anybody that's ever curled up next to a big dog when they were a kid understands that and that's it's a mm-hmm. beautiful thing i just the connection between uh toothless and what's his name in uh hiccup yeah hiccup uh i like that affected me like the moment that toothless and hiccup meet each other in the first how to train your dragon is better than anything in this movie in my opinion Mm-hmm. But it's I don't know it just because they both relate to dragons I don't know it's a tough comparison because the How to Train Your Dragon movies at least are big adventure right. epics you yeah. know they they are at their core about a kid and the dragon but they're big adventure movies there's a lot of action there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on there's big bad guys and everything this is a quiet movie about you know the going ons of a logging town and I think it's still set in the seventies or the eighties like it has that. Like there's no new technology. Yeah, it's set in the eighties. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so it has that. It has a great sense of place and of time. It's really quiet, and I think that's the thing. And there, there's something nice about that. I I like that not everything has to be a big world-ending, you know, narrative or anything. And yeah, we've seen the sort of thing done before, but there, there are layers to this movie that we don't typically see in a in a kids movie. And I think it's a good sign, too. Like, it's more than just fine. I think that's the thing I'm saying. Because I've seen lots of fine kids' movies. You know, you see them, you forget about them, you move on with your life. And uh, somehow those are also the ones that kids end up being obsessed with, which makes it even more <laughs> annoying. Uh, I, I, There is just so much. Like, there is poetry going on in the visuals of this movie and the way it's all put together. Um yeah, I think it's just reaching at a deeper level and it succeeds a lot more. I think this is just a good sign for Disney too, right? Like it's the complete opposite of how Warner Brothers is handling DC right now um, of pretty much letting the directors do their thing and not getting in their way. And what happens is basically magic. All right. Uh, well, any other thoughts on Peach Dragon, guys? I feel like that's a pretty good summary. I, I think 
Jeff, <laughs> like you said, I think it's fine. Devendra liked it a bit more than us. Um, but certainly not a bad film by any means. Yeah. Right. Uh, I, I do. I feel bad for Carl Urban uh, just because I. This guy al- always the supporting actor, never the star. You know, <laughs> never kind of like the lead. Um, and I like I I would have rather had like him in the like big uh, in the good guy role uh, rather than being the guy that's trying to like take advantage of everything. Uh, there's that. Uh, Robert Redford is nice. Uh, Bryce Dallas Howard. I kind of. I th- she didn't really bring much to this movie for me, and that was kind of a shame. Uh, this movie made $21 million at the box office this weekend. Not great, but the movie also didn't cost like $150 million to make. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it only cost like $65 million. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah. With think, these level of effects, that's impressive. Yeah, so I think uh, it's going to be just fine. And uh, I hope it opens more doors for David Lowry. So. Mm-hmm. That's our review of Peach Dragon, and that is our episode this week. Stay tuned to hear what we'll be reviewing next week. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmCast.com. Email us at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. Devendra Hardwar, where can we find more of your work on the internet this week? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at Twitter.com slash Devendra. I write about tech at Engadget.com, and we're also starting the Engadget podcast back up, so check that out. And I'll cool. be on Twit this week. Um, I'm actually going to drive up to Petaluma and go record something in their studio. This is the last recording in the Twitch studio. They're moving to San Francisco, I think. So that'll wow. be fun. Cool. Yeah. Jeff Kanata? I always love your appearances on Twit. Uh, oh, thanks. So I'm, I'm very excited to listen to that. Uh, I have several shows that you can check out. If you want to hear me talk about video games, I have a show called DLC, which you can find at 5x5.tv slash DLC. Uh, I have a comedy science show called We Have Concerns that you can find at wehaveconcerns.com. And uh, we're about to end tomorrow daily, but we have one more week of shows there, and then we'll launch something new on CNET. So while it's, uh, while it's still going, you can watch me at tomorrowdaily.com. Find all my stuff at davechen.me. Watch my film, The Primary Instinct, on Hulu if you're in the United States, or buy it on VHX at theprimaryinstinct.com. Next week, we'll be reviewing Kubo and the Two Strings, the newest animated film uh, from Leica. And uh, I'm really looking forward to watching that and talking about it yeah. with you guys. It should be a really interesting movie and could be one of our favorite mo- movies of the summer, uh, if Jeff Kanata is to be believed. So, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, already one of mine, that's for sure. Thanks for listening to the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. We're out. We watch the movies, flip 